James chapter 5, verses 10 and 11. And I'm going to read this passage from the New Living Translation tonight. It says, For examples of patience in suffering, dear brothers and sisters, look at the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We give great honor to those who endure under suffering. For instance, you know about Job, a man of great endurance. You can see how the Lord was kind to him at the end, for the Lord is full of tenderness and mercy. Hallelujah. We said this passage in the epistle of James is a New Testament commentary on the book of Job. It tells us what our takeaway should be, and that is Job's endurance and God's goodness. Hallelujah. That's what we should take away from the book of Job. And in order to do that, we must use uh, the proper rules of Bible interpretation. We really use them for other books of the Bible, and we specifically need to apply them when studying the book of Job. And we covered that, so I'm not going to review too much. Um, I understand you can watch or re-watch these lessons on YouTube, but we did um, tell you, I believe last week, that the book of Job is divided into three parts, the prologue, the debate, and the epilogue. The prologue and the epilogue are relatively short, but the debate is a lengthy dialogue. And in the debate, which is 35 chapters, chapters 3 through 37, there is really nothing in those 35 chapters uniquely, according to this book of the Bible, there is nothing that we can pull from those 35 chapters and say, thus saith the Lord. Again, using the rules of Bible interpretation, nothing in those 35 chapters is God speaking or even the inspired author of the book. They are quotes, direct quotes, of four individuals, Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and Elihu. And so, again, we talked about that last week. Get, we always used to say, get the tape. <laughs> but watch on YouTube. Um, and we talked about the prologue last week. God's description of Job is in the prologue three times. God says that he is blameless and upright. Then we also get a behind-the-scenes view uh, and learn that Satan is who actually attacked Job and that behind the scenes 
view was for the reader, is for the reader. Job was not aware of Satan's schemes, and he certainly had no New Testament knowledge, nor even what we call Old Testament. The scriptures were not even written, not even the book of Moses, the books of Moses, the what we call the Pentateuch. Job, uh, according to most scholars and commentators, is the oldest book in the Bible. And so Job was not an Israelite, meaning he was not a descendant of Abraham. He was a descendant of Noah. He was from the land of Uz or Uz. And we read in Genesis that Shem had a great-grandson or great-great-grandson named Uz. So we know, of course, that Job was a descendant of Noah, as we all are, who was a descendant of Adam, of course, and Abel. And he was a godly man. And he and his friends, these were his close friends, had the same basic theology that was passed down to them from Noah and monotheistic worship was rare where they lived and in that day. So these were the God-fearing, God-worshipping crowd. <laughs> and you, you could say, you know, Job had four crazy friends, <laughs> right? But they didn't stand with him like, you know, the, the friends that took the paralyzed man up on the roof and busted a hole in it and put him before Jesus. Um, but these were Job's close friends. And that is why when they preached to Job, over and over again, I can give you many references, Job says, I know that. So yes, you can find scriptures, you can find statements that Job's friends make that are true, that do line up with the whole of scripture, which is one of the rules of Bible interpretation. Um, but it's also, but their um, speeches are also laced with unscriptural statements. And bottom line, God was not pleased even though they may have said some things that were true, because their attitude uh, toward Job was one of being judgmental. And they did their best in three rounds to convince Job that he had sinned and that is why he was suffering. That is why the calamities came and the sickness. And they were wrong. When God finally speaks in the epilogue, he specifically says to Eliphaz and the two friends, his two friends, you have not spoken of me, the thing that is right, as my servant Job has. And then he 
commissioned them to go to Job and have Job pray for them. And they do. I'm way ahead of myself right now. But what we want to talk about and see is that the speeches of Job's friends was one of the most difficult things that Job endured and his endurance being mistreated and misjudged is what James speaks of as an example. Jesus Christ was our greatest example of endurance and one of the things that Christ suffered and endured was being misjudged, being falsely accused, and betrayed, abandoned by his friends. And there are two categories of suffering that Jesus Christ endured. And we need to distinguish them. One, Jesus Christ suffered in our stead as our substitute. And he took our sin and the penalty for our sin. And I get an amen. <laughs> and he took our infirmities, our sicknesses, our diseases, he bore them so that we did not have to bear them. He bore the penalty for our sin so that we did not have to bear them. Amen? He became our sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So Christ suffered, number one, as our substitute. He acted in our place. He wore our jersey, so to speak. And thank God, he rose victorious. And we rose with him. Hallelujah. And that's why his victory is our victory. Amen. But secondly, or I, could, or I should say, and secondly, Jesus Christ suffered as our example. And there are many scriptures in the New Testament that talk about sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Okay? And we mentioned Hebrews 12.1. You could put that up there or you could look with me at Hebrews 12.1, but we're coming out of chapter 11, which is the great hall of faith, and there's a long list of heroes of faith who endured a lot, amen? And through faith and endurance, they obtained promises. So, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, I'm skipping around again. 
But that's okay. Holy Spirit is helping. Amen. Therefore, I'm going to read it in the ESV. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, now that would be everyone in Hebrews chapter 11 and others, your loved ones that are in heaven are in that great cloud of witnesses. Job is in that great cloud of witnesses. And since we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses in the grandstands of heaven, so to speak, cheering us on, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance. King James Version says patience, but it's the same word as the endurance of Job in James 5. King James says the patience of Job. It's hupomone. It means endurance or perseverance or steadfastness, stick to itness. Hallelujah. And so we are to run our race with hupomone. You have heard of the hupomone of Job. That's the same Greek word. And he is the only one mentioned by name in the book of James, or by James, when he talks about endurance. And Jesus endured, as we read on further. One way we are to run our race with endurance is by looking to Jesus. He is the founder or the author the perfecter or the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him did what? Endured the cross. Now look at the next phrase, despising the shame. Shame came from being falsely accused, misjudged, hung on a, the, a cross of a criminal when he was innocent. So even those closest to him, those who witnessed the miracles he performed, were shaking their heads and saying, he must have sinned. <laughs> he, you know, why would God allow him to be crucified if he was innocent, right? So they did not understand, amen? And so that is something that Jesus endured. And in the great messianic chapter of Isaiah 53, it says, that we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. So that was part of what Christ suffered, that people considered him to be stricken of God and afflicted. And in that way, Job foreshadowed, Job's endurance 
foreshadowed the endurance of Christ. We know that Christ was the only one who was sinless and the only one who was our substitute. So not in all ways, but, in, but specifically in the way that Job was misjudged, mistreated, misunderstood. And as I said in the first lesson, I think, it says in the book of James, you have heard of the endurance of Job, and he was speaking to, according to James 1.1, the 12 tribes scattered abroad. So they were Jewish believers, primarily James's audience, the 12 tribes scattered abroad. And so he said very confidently to them, you have heard of the endurance or the perseverance of Job. And no doubt they grew up hearing their rabbis and scribes speak of Job's perseverance and his endurance. On the other hand, I had never heard of Job, number one, growing up, because <laughs> I was not raised in an evangelical uh, Christian home. Or and then I said, in, we recently celebrated 40 years of marriage and ministry, and yes, praise God. For, but in all of these years of being a Bible-believing Christian, 50 years maybe, I hate to point out my age, <laughs> but in all of these years of being a Bible-believing Christian, I honestly do not recall hearing any preacher preach on the endurance of Job. I have heard of how God restored. I have heard them maybe, you know, point out other certain things. But what about the endurance of Job? And so, when we ask the question, if 35 chapters in the book of Job are basically a fleshly debate <laughs> of four uh, people, what's the purpose of, of those chapters being in the Bible? And I would suggest there's something to learn about Job's endurance from this debate. So I'm going to briefly uh, give you a brief, uh, let's just say, let's, let's give titles to their sermons. <laughs> Eliphaz the Temanite, you know, at first he was a witness to Job's godly lifestyle as was, you know, the author of the, of the book in that he said in Job 4, 3, and 4, 
In the past, you have encouraged many people. You have strengthened those who were weak. Your words have supported those who were falling. You encouraged those with shaky knees. But then in verse 5, he says, this is NLT, but now when trouble strikes you, you lose heart. You're terrified when it touches you. So Eliphaz uses Job's excellent track record to say to him in so many words, why don't you practice what you preach? That was basically Eliphaz's sermon to Job. You can see why it wasn't comforting. <laughs> then you have Bildad the Shuhite, and Job and his friend Bildad came from a long line of God worshipers. In round one, which was chapter eight, Bildad refers to the wisdom of their ancestors when he preaches to Job the timeless doctrine of sowing and reaping. So Bildad basically preaches to Job, you reap what you sow. And again, Job answers in chapter nine, I think it is, I know these things. You don't think I know these things? And the worst thing that Bildad, the Shuhite, said to Job, that from my perspective, because of all the catastrophic things that happened to Job, the absolute worst had to be the loss of his 10 children. Uh, how a tornado hit the home where they were all together celebrating a birthday or such and collapsed and all 10 of his children died. And Bildad tells Job, your children must have sinned. Their punishment was well deserved. That's Job 8.4. And then Zophar, the Namathite, he preaches, he, he only gives two rounds, the other had three rounds, but he preaches a long sermon on the plight of the wicked and basically defending God's justice. And like the other two friends, he urges Job to acknowledge his sin and to repent. So, this was what Job endured from his three closest friends. And at the end of last week's lesson, I said, although their preaching was wrong, their coming to him was right. In some place, I have it, in last week's notes, Job said his friends and relatives were f far from him. So these were the three friends that actually came to him. <laughs> so most of his friends and kinfolk took the easy route 
and just stayed away from him. So these were Job's close friends. And although Job does not say everything right, you can't even take every verse from Job's responses or any verse and quote it as truth because he said things that were actually close to blasphemous. He didn't say everything right. He complains bitterly, but he expresses himself honestly. He genuinely cries out to God and to these close friends. And interestingly, God does not ever directly rebuke or correct Job for anything that he has said. He rebukes the friends and then requires them to go to Job for prayer. So God was kind to Job and we know of course in the end he restored to him double and he was already the wealthiest man in all the land. But in chapter 6, Job ex exclaims, for example, if my misery could be weighed and my trouble put on the scales, they would outweigh the sand of the sea. Job 6, 2 and 3. In chapter 7, he says, I will never again feel happiness. This is how he felt. And he speaks authentically uh, from the anguish of his soul and insists that he is innocent. No doubt he had examined himself and he really did not know he had a relationship with God. And he did not know, he was not going to admit to something that he did not know of. And so he insists that he's innocent and he does not refrain from letting his friends know what he thinks of their help. He said, you're all worthless physicians. You're miserable comforters. And how long will you torment my soul and break me in pieces with your words? That's, he says those things in Job 13 and Job 16 and Job 19. So Job's endurance foreshadowed the endurance of Christ in that uh, he was misjudged and mistreated by his friends. And in this way, he did serve as an example. And have you ever experienced the pain of being misjudged, mis, you know, falsely accused, perhaps even by your closest friends. And I, where's my phone? Oh, it's, you did bring it back. I want to say, I wrote this down as I was praying today. 
that today, because today is May 31st, the final day of May, and May has been designated as Mental Health Awareness Month, and I do not want to be remiss in not acknowledging it because the purpose, of course, is to raise awareness, but also to eliminate the stigma surrounding mental illness. And I think, in some ways, the term mental illness is itself a misnomer because, I'm reading because I want to say exactly what I want to say, and that's it. Uh, because we typically do not understand an illness to be something in the mind. And in church, we teach from God's word that we can choose our thoughts and we have control over our mind and our emotions. However, the brain is a part of our physical body and there are some who have been diagnosed with, quote, mental illness, but it could stem from a neurological uh, disorder. You know, in my case, I told you in the first lesson, I was misjudged by a close friend because she called me in the hospital and I was rude. I don't even remember it, but it was very painful to be misjudged in that way. On the inside, I was screaming out, I had a brain injury. And there is so much over these last two or three years that people don't see that I've struggled with. Yeah, you could see the paralysis. That was probably the least of what I've dealt with. I'm not trying to get up here trying to get sympathy but I am trying to get empathy for, and that's the reason for Mental Health Awareness Month is to raise awareness, but to eliminate the stigma, at which causes misjudgment. And we cannot judge. We, whatever the reason is, and it, there can be a neurological disorder, genetic, chemical, biological, physiological issues, not all choices like 
with any sickness. You know, yes, there are lifestyle choices involved sometimes, but we cannot judge. No matter what, we must be careful not to judge lest we misjudge. And the one of Job's comforters. Instead, we should seek to understand and most of all, have compassion. Amen. Amen. And if you remember in John chapter 9, the Jews had a similar assumption regarding a man that was born blind that Job's friends had and that somebody, you know, everything is tit for tat. Every, there's, everything is cause and effect. And they asked Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus said, neither has this man sinned nor his parents. Then he goes on to say, but that the works of God should be made manifest, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night comes when no man can work, and he healed the man. Hallelujah. And the Message Bible says, you're asking the wrong question. You're looking for someone to blame. There is no such cause effect here. Look instead for what God can do. Hallelujah. I'll tell you that passage I hung on to for me along with, let me encourage someone else, Psalm 5 verse 11 says, we are let all those who trust in him rejoice. I didn't put this in my notes, but if you can get it up there. Psalm 5, verse 11. And then it says, Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Hallelujah. I shout for joy because God is my defender. Hallelujah. God knows, God understands. And he is a faithful high priest. And so when I said that Jesus suffered in two distinct ways, one as our substitute, and the things he suffered as our substitute, we do not have to suffer. Secondly, he suffered as our example and those are things we do. And it says of Jesus that though he was a son, yet learned he obedience through the things that he suffered. So we can learn obedience through the things that we suffer and specifically in the category of Christ's suffering the category that we're talking about tonight of being reproached, 
misjudged, persecuted, all those who are godly, who live godly, will suffer persecution. So, Job typified Christ in that he did live godly. He wasn't sinless. We know that. Nobody is. Romans 3, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But what he was suffering, the tragedies, the sickness, it wasn't because he did something wrong. And Jesus suffered, well, let's read some other verses in Hebrews uh, as we close here. Hebrews 2, I'm going to read in the ESV, Hebrews 2.18, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So another reason why Jesus suffered certain things as a man. We know he was God, but he was fully human and was tempted in all points, like as we are, yet without sin. He was even, he even resisted unto blood, striving against sin. And because of that, he is a high priest who understands our suffering, our weaknesses, amen? And he's able to help us. Glory to God. That's Hebrews 2, 18, and then Hebrews 4, 15 says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 5, going to chapter 5, and verse 7, it says of Jesus that in the days of his flesh, he offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears. Wow. The mirror translation says, in an outburst of agonizing emotion. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And then verse 8 says, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And then, while on the cross, Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And as you know, in the end, Job prayed for his friends as well. And in that way, he was a type of Christ. Jesus' first teaching on prayer in the New Testament is Matthew 5.44. And in that verse, he instructs us, the first thing he tells us to pray for is this. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. The first thing that Jesus told us to pray for is those who spitefully use you and persecute you. And then, of course, we have the man.
illuminate throughout the Eucharist.